We're doing a teaching series called Citizens. We've looked at various topics so far, welfare, immigration, economy, government, those kind of things. Today we're talking about the, the whole area of war and conflict. Next week we're looking at life, week after that death. So we're covering uh, birth, deaths, marriages and everything in between. So it's, uh, hopefully it's a, a fun series for us to engage with some of these things and hopefully equip us as Christians to think, how do we think about these issues? What does the Bible have to say about them? Um, so if you've got a Bible and you want to look up something, we're going to be looking, just going to be reading something from Matthew 5 in a moment's time. Um, before I do that, I just want to say this, that Jesus was alive during a time in earth's history where there was a lot of conflict. Uh, he was born during the reign of King Herod the Great, who was essentially a psychopath with a crown. Um, he murdered 10 of his wives and at least three of his sons. Uh, so not a nice guy. Uh, he lived during a time where the Romans were occupying his country, and if you resisted Roman rule, you were put to death. But equally, if you didn't resist Roman rule enough, your own countrymen saw you as a traitor and some of the more extreme parts of Judaism would put you to death as well. Uh, there was over 20 different sects or um, separations within Judaism, all of them talking about who the Messiah was, when he was going to come, arguing about what the people of God in, in Israel needed to do. There's a lot of conflict. Jesus was born into a world that was familiar with quarreling, injustice, arguments, divisions, and it was into that environment that he said these words that I'm going to read for us. Matthew 5 verse 43. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Although mainly on the just, because the unjust steal the just's umbrella. Um, he didn't say that. Our world is a world that is divided and very familiar with conflict. Uh, most historians would agree that the per past hundred years have been the bloodiest on the planet. Um, somewhere in the region of 187 million people have been killed as a result of war, most of them civilians. And uh, they reckon that 170 million people or so have been killed by their own governments. There are currently 26 nuclear warheads on the planet. And each of them is more powerful than the one that was dropped on Hiroshima that killed over 100,000 people. There have been at least seven different genocides within the past century, one of the most famous of which was the genocide in 1994 in Rwanda, where neighbors turned on one another, and in 90 days, three months, 800,000 people were slaughtered. 800,000 people in three months. East Sussex as a county has a population of 500,000 people, thereabouts. That's an amount of people, almost twice of East Sussex, killed in three months as a result of genocide. But as we look at this area of war and conflict, it isn't just war that we're talking about. We live in a society that uh, one sociologist has said that we live in an argument culture. Um, where we approach everything with a warlike mentality. If you want to discuss an idea, you have a debate. If you want to write an essay, you attack a point of view, because if you're attacking, it shows that you're really thinking. Um, if you want to you know, present the news, what do we do? We find polarizing views, and we put them on TV. If you, you watch the BBC, they, they're especially guilty of this. It's hilarious, isn't it? Any issue, they'll find someone who thinks it's okay, and they'll find someone who thinks it's awful, and they go, this is news, this is how we present the news. But that's the society we live in. Arguments, 
discussions, conversations, they're old hat. We want conflict. We want to fight some ideas, thrash some ideas out. And the internet, the invention of the internet has basically created an environment where you can have high anonymity and low accountability and you can say whatever you want. Um, Whether that's trolling people and sending them abusive messages or whether that is just being unthoughtful, kind of unsympathetic and rude to people on social media. The internet's there for that. And anecdotally, at least, it feels as though um, people are a lot quicker to exchange insults and verbally abuse one another. Um, Rude hand gestures and road rage abound. They follow us everywhere we go. Um, Or maybe it's just my driving, I don't know, but that seems to be my experience. Uh, And there's a scale, isn't there? There's a scale down, I suppose, this end of war, genocide, uh, ethnic cleansing, horrendous things like that when we talk about conflict, but all the way down to this end of the scale where we're just talking about minor disagreements and exchanges of kind of harsh words to one another. Um, you know what it's like when you know you've got to have an awkward conversation with someone where someone has upset you or someone has got a problem with you and it's, you can't think about anything else. If you know in your day you're going to have to have one of those difficult conversations at work or you've got to resolve an argument with a family member, sometimes there's nothing else you can think about but that. Are you one of those people who deals with that first or puts it off as long as you can? Most people hate conflict and do everything we can to avoid conflict of any type and any description. And so as Christians, I want us to pose some questions and think about some of these themes and ask the question what the Bible has to say about them. Some of the questions that would be relevant for us in this is, so how do we resolve personal conflicts? How should we respond to verbal abuse or slander? Just this past week, uh, a blog was written about our church, people saying some unkind things about it. Uh, In Eastbourne, one of the congregation members has recently been elected as the local MP. So it was basically as a result of an elected member in our church. Now she and the church under scrutiny. It's easy for people to write all kinds of things that maybe are true, maybe not. But that's the world that we live in. How do we respond to stuff like that when people say things? Uh, Is there a right or wrong way to use social media? Can we ever repay insults with insults as long as we couch it in the words, I'm just speaking the truth in love. Like I can say what I want, right, if we do that. Is it ever acceptable for a Christian to sue another person? Uh, What's the Christian response to warfare? Uh, Is it ever acceptable to use violence to stop someone who's attacking your family as a Christian? Do we pray for dictators to meet Jesus or a sniper? What's the right way of doing things? And given the chance, would you kill Hitler or Osama bin Laden or Saddam Hussein or where do you draw the line? Mugabe? Where is the line and and are we allowed to do that? Those are some of the things that we're talking about. And in asking those questions, I'm hoping I've just popped the lid off a can of worms and just going to let it wriggle on the floor for the morning. And I'm not going to try to answer all of those questions because, frankly, there's just too much for us to take in in one morning. So in life groups this week, we'll be picking up some of those issues. And if you're particularly interested in in getting a a thoughtful uh, understanding of what the Bible says about war and conflict, I'd want to recommend this book to you. It's a book called Fight, written by a guy called Preston Sprinkle which is a brilliant name. You should read it just so you can have that on your bookcase. Sprinkle as the author. Fantastic book and very thoughtful analysis of the Bible's teaching on war and conflict. It's important that we as Christians think about these things, though. Consider this, that in 1994, in the Rwandan genocide, Christian mothers with babies on their back were hacking their neighbors to death. 
In 2003, Donald Rumsfeld encouraged George Bush to send more troops into Iraq by quoting the Bible. In 2011, the world celebrated the death of Osama bin Laden and Christians joined in with them. We ce- I celebrated that Osama bin Laden had died. Another person's in hell and I celebrate. Um, in 2015, um, Christians, along with everyone else, took to social media to express their, their outrage, shock, and horror in apocalyptic terms about the election result. And every day on the internet, Christians are lampooning and abusing non-Christians who say things that they disagree with them. And Christians are firing round after vile round of insults at one another who disagree with their particular point of doctrine. And all the while Christians are doing this, the watching world scratches its head and goes, I'm glad I'm not a Christian. They seem to argue with one another quite a lot. That's the world that we live in. And if we're not careful, we can respond more like we would naturally or more like everyone else in our culture than like what the Bible tells us to. Um, When we first moved into our house in Seaford, uh, we'd been there a few days and uh, we'd just moved in. So I was putting some pictures up on the wall. My neighbor came around to complain that I was banging on the wall. I wasn't doing it at an antisocial time of the week or the day, but she felt the need to come around and complain. And I thought, I've been here two days. I've got to get my house in order. Surely you understand that. And I was getting angry at this mild conflict that had arisen, thinking, right, this is great. I've got to live next to this lady. How am I going to respond to this? What kind of things can I say back to her? And I remember Polly came around once with Martin, and we told her that our neighbor complained. And her first response was, oh, great. You could, like, you could bake her a cake or something like that. I was like, I don't want to bless her. I want to persecute her. I can't believe she's done that to me. My natural inclination, then, is not to respond in the way that we read Jesus telling us to. Essentially, there's three, three ways that the Bible encourages us to think about and respond to the, the whole area of conflict and some of these ethical questions that I raised. And I'm going to put some of them up here. The first one is the whole concept and idea of what's called the, the higher law principle. Uh, the end justifies the means. So this is the idea that uh, it is sometimes necessary to choose between the lesser of two evils, two things, both bad, in order to preserve and save someone's life. So the scenario that's painted is that an attacker comes into your house and is about to kill your wife and kids. What do you do? You've got a gun. Can you shoot him? <laughs> do, do you do that? Or perhaps the idea that um, a girl runs past you down that way and an axe murderer you know he's an axe murderer because he's got a big axe and a sign saying axe murderer. He runs up to you and says, which way did the girl go? What do you do? Do you lie? Is it acceptable to lie to save a life? Or do you have to go, oh, well, the commandment is I don't lie. So therefore, she went that way. Uh, what do we do? Sometimes people say, well, no, the higher law of love means that I can break this lesser law of lying to someone. And in the Bible, we see um, several examples of this. So let me just do this. A higher law idea over here. higher law. There we go. Okay. In the Bible, we see several examples of this. Rahab, for one, in the Old Testament, uh, she hides some of the Israelite spies and lies lies about it. The Bible commends her for her lying. The Israelite midwives during the Exodus, uh, again, lied to Pharaoh and the Egyptians about the the Israelite women giving birth to boys because it was illegal and they were killing boys in those days. So it's the higher law idea. The second idea uh, is one that we, we read about just then when Jesus was describing things. So he talked about the idea of responding in non-violence, um, sometimes called pacifism. 
Again, it's never appropriate for Christians to respond in anger and violently. That's the second idea. And the third idea is the whole concept of just war. That This is a tradition that began with Aristotle and then in the 4th century with one of the early church fathers in a Christian state developed it and said, given that war is a, a necessary evil sometimes to stop evil, therefore we should think about how the state engages with war in a just way. That there is a way of doing war that's all entirely evil and a way of doing it that's just. And they drew up a series of guidelines to help people think through when it's appropriate to go to war. So those are some of the approaches to war uh, that people have thought through. The, the higher law and ethical dilemmas, the non-violence approach, and the concept of just war. But I want us to, to leave war and focus more just on conflict. How we respond and how we should respond to conflict in our lives. The first response, uh, and in many ways the natural response to any form of injustice or any form of someone calling you a name is to get even. A proportional response approach, isn't it? Um, Maybe that would be down here, okay? A, A proportional response. Someone calls you a name, you call them a name. Someone swears at you, you swear at them. You get even. You don't go too far. Someone hits you, you hit them back. That's an entirely natural way of responding. Uh, several years ago, uh, I'm just going to share some stories about how I've got this wildly wrong, so you, you know, hopefully feel better about um, the things that you do, (laughs) and that we all do, that we're all in the same boat together. So several years ago, I was driving home from a Christian conference. I'd had two days of teaching about what the Bible says, and I was feeling particularly pious as a Christian, because that's what we do, that's how we feel. And uh, Amy was sat next to me, we were driving down the A22, coming back from Tunbridge. I was going maybe 75 maybe 80, in the right-hand lane. So I, was, I wasn't keeping to the speed limit. A guy comes up behind me very fast, going 90, 100 miles an hour maybe, and starts flashing his lights and honking his horn, get out of the way, get out of the way. That annoyed me. I wasn't going slow. There was no need to respond or to treat me like that. So I graciously pulled over into the left-hand lane, and as he went past, I waved at him. Although I didn't use every finger on my hand as I waved at him as he drove past me. I used a couple. And, and then I looked over and saw the size of the man that I'd just sworn at, and I was very scared. He pulled over into a lay-by, got out of his truck and started swearing and calling me in for a fight. I was like, oh, goodness, my wife's next to me. I'm trying to, you know, like she didn't know what I did. She just thought, why is this man waving at us? Got back into the car. Uh, he got back into his van and started chasing me to catch up with me. Um, by this time, I have, I'm having to go close to 100 just to try to outrun the guy. He's caught up with me. We're probably both going about 100. He's going right behind me, very close, alongside me. He's getting very close to my car. We're now going over a bridge. <laughs> I'm thinking, all it takes is for him to get in and to veer into me and I'm off over the edge and eventually I had to eat humble pie and look at him and go sorry (laughs) and he just kind of calmed down I thought that's a natural way of responding it's very different from how Jesus tells us to respond you'll notice the second way of responding is that we um, this is we absorb it this is what another way of putting non-violence that we absorb the injustice we take the hit and we don't respond um, so famously, the civil rights movement in America and any nonviolent protests have begun like this. Um, particularly in, in the civil rights movement, I watched a film about it where uh, people, African-Americans would sit in cafes and diners that they weren't allowed to be in and they would just take the abuse that they got, hoping that the cameras were catching it and broadcasting it around the world, that the outrage was spread. They absorbed it. And then the, the third way of responding and the way that Jesus seems to advocate in what we read 
is the way of the higher, not law necessarily, but the higher calling that Jesus has on us. That when you are wronged, when you are sinned against, you respond with blessing. You respond by praying for those who persecute you. Examples of this in the Bible would be Paul and Silas in prison, been beaten up by a Roman jailer, chucked in the stocks. In the middle of the night, they're singing worship songs to God. And when they're freed miraculously, they lead the jailer to the Lord. They forgive him. Or the example of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, who was stoned to death. And just before he died, he said, Father, forgive them. He blesses them. This is shocking. This is hard to do. This seems to be the Christian ethic. Um, I heard a story or read a story recently about one woman in America who was uh, attacked and molested by a man who drove her to the woods, raped her, put her back in the car and dumped her on the side of the road. As she was in the boot of the car, not knowing whether she was going to live or die, she started singing Amazing Grace as loud as she could. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. She sung it over and over again. The police caught her, caught her rapist and charged him. She began praying for him. She forgave him. She asked God to save him. Years later, he became a Christian. She celebrated. Christian responses, the higher calling, is impacting, life-changing, remarkable. But really, is it practical? Is it appropriate even? I was at a party, kid's party yesterday, and one of the dads of the, the four-year-old said to me, oh, I've taught Theo that um, if someone starts on him, I've taught him how to put them on the floor. Because you have to these days, he said to me. You have to, don't you? That has to be how you respond. And I just went, mm, interesting, thoughtful. But is he right? We have to. And before we start encouraging one another to do that, let's just double check, okay? Because fortunately for us, when Jesus said those words in the Sermon on the Mount, and the reason, by the way, that I, I began by talking about Jesus' society was to say there has never been an easy environment in which to, to kind of encourage this. It's not like when Jesus said it, people went, well, yeah, that's, that's easy to do. We haven't got any enemies. No, he, people, he lived in a world that knew conflict very well, and yet he still said this. There's never been a time when it's easy, but arguably, in light of the conflict, there's never been a time where it's more necessary. Living in a more violent society than before, violent computer games, violent films, just, it's not getting us anywhere. But before, before we kind of go, go wholesale with Jesus, let's just double check something. Um, because Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, was there when Jesus said these words. And later on in his life, he wrote down for all of us to see uh, an explanation of what Jesus meant, which is helpful for us. Because hopefully he'll be able to let us off the hook and shed some light on it. In 1 Peter, where he's writing to a church, he says, he says this. It should appear behind us. 1 Peter 3 verse 9. He says this. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called. So that's a little bit awkward because Peter seems to agree with what Jesus said. Uh, fortunately, I mean, maybe Peter was too close to Jesus as a friend because he didn't, so didn't want to disagree with him. Fortunately for us, uh, one of the best theologians in church history ever so lived wrote a, a very good letter called The Letter to the Romans. And in this, he gives us a fuller explanation of exactly what Jesus meant. In Romans 12, verse 14, this is what he said. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. This is awkward. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but associate with the lowly. 
Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Okay, let's just do a live exposition of exactly what Paul meant. And to do this, we're going to put the verses back up on the screen and we'll just walk through and spot some of the things that Paul's saying and doing when he does this. So go to the the next one after that. Okay, so there's some negatives. Next slide for us. And there, no, next one. <laughs> there we go, thank you. Okay, so there's some negatives that Paul says. So let's, let's bring them up. So firstly, he says, um, do not curse them. So do not curse. You have to excuse my bad handwriting here. This is what he says. First of all, do not curse. Okay, next one. Do not be proud or haughty. Do not be proud. Next one. Repay repay no one evil for evil. No evil. Okay, next one. Never avenge yourselves. He's making it quite clear for us. It's hard to wriggle out of this one now. Never avenge. And next one. And And do not be overcome by evil. Do not be overcome by evil. So negatively, Paul states it like this, you don't do this, which kind of maps with our concept of pacifism or non-violence, that we mustn't respond with violence. But Paul, like Jesus, takes it further, and he mentions some things that positively we are supposed to do. He says this, the top bless those who persecute you. That's the first one. Then rejoice with those who rejoice. Um, associate with the lowly offsets the, uh, that negative we had. Okay, next one. Give thought to do what is honourable. So live honourable lives. Okay, next. Live peaceably with all. Okay. And if your enemy is hungry, so he's talking about feeding and serving and giving drink to our enemies. And do not be overcome evil, but overcome evil with good. That's how Christians, that's how the Bible, that's how Jesus would want his followers to respond. And that is what makes Christianity so shocking and so difficult and so outrageous. What's going on when Jesus says these things, when Paul says these? There's two things that underpin. The first is that Jesus and the Bible are clear that human beings have an intrinsic honor and value to themselves and are to be treated with dignity and worth and respect. No matter what they've done, people are valuable. I heard a story about a life group in another church who were given 50 pounds to go and bless someone. And what the life group decided to do was that they, they decided to serve the people in their community who never get thanks for the work that they do. So they bought some chocolate 
and they um, went to give it to some of the people who serve the community. They went up to a traffic warden who serves the community, um, believe it or not, um, and stops chaos and things like that. And they just gave them some chocolate and said, we just want to bless you because what you do is valuable. And this person was so grateful and said to them, today um, I've had my toes run over, Um, someone's wished cancer upon me, and someone else has told me that they wish I was dead. I'm just trying to do my job. We're so quick to pour verbal abuse and uh, dishonor on people that the opposite speaks volumes. People are worthy of honor and value and respect. Um, And we do that with our words by honoring people. The book of James says that in the tongue, the tongue has the power of life and death. That when we speak blessing, uh, that's what we're doing. We're speaking life. I heard a story this week of a guy in the church who's a school teacher. And um, when he was reading out his register, he felt uh, that rather than just read out the names, he would bless those kids, especially in his class, especially those kids who make his life misery. So he'd read out a name and say, Jack so-and-so, and then would follow up with, you're always here on time and I'm really grateful. And then the next name would say, I really appreciate what you bring to the class. And he went through the whole list of names, just encouraging people, just, just telling them that he's grateful for them. It's the power of words. Because people don't hear that very often. People aren't treated with the honor and dignity and value that they deserve. So as Christians, we're committed that people have value and have honor, and we're to treat them like that. Now, a lot of people's response of anger and irritation and frustration to a situation is because there's a restlessness in them that just needs to be told they're loved and valuable and can be treated with honor. Yesterday, um, this really hit me. I was um, just looking through some stuff in my shed and I came across a picture that my dad had made for me. Uh, my dad died five years ago and he drew this picture 10 years ago, almost to the, to the month. And uh, I, t- I knew that on the back of this picture he'd written some words for me. So I took it out of the frame and I turned it over and had a look and he just put the words, to, uh, to my wonderful son. And when I read those words, it was as though all of the restlessness in me all of the vying for security and longing for significance in me when I read those words to my wonderful son they just they were silenced and replaced with a calm and a stillness and a peace because my dad though dead had just said to me you're a wonderful son and it it made such an, an impression on me I realized that most of us, it's what we're looking for and longing to hear. Our dads, an authority figure in our lives, someone to say, you're wonderful. I love you. I appreciate you. I honor you. And when we hear those words, peace and calm comes back to us. A lot of conflict in society comes because all of us are desperately restlessly looking for peace and when we meet the God who treats us with the respect and value and dignity and worth the God who says you're made in my image and likeness you are valuable peace can flood our souls 
And that's what's going on, that's what's going on underneath those, those words and Jesus' is, is that first of all, that people are worthy of being treated with respect and dignity and honor. And that's important for us to grasp. The second thing that's going on is the gospel. It's the gospel. Uh, your background shapes a lot of how you respond to conflict, doesn't it? If you were raised in a home where at the first kind of, the way you dealt with conflict was by raising voices, slamming doors, speaking, you know, shortly to one another. If you did that in your background, then that's how you're going to respond to a lot of situations now. If you come from a home that um, ran from conflict and buried their heads and didn't talk about the elephants in the room, that's going to be your approach. Our backgrounds affect how we respond to conflict and difficult situations. In the gospel, you've been given a new background. You've been treated with a different way than you're perhaps familiar with growing up. Because in the gospel, the message is that God, though you were an enemy of his, forgave you. That more than that, sent his son to bleed for you. That he absorbed it in himself so that you could live differently. You could know a different kind of life and value in your life. And when the gospel gets hold of you, it changes you. You're able to respond to conflict in a way that you previously weren't able to do. You know, in intense situations, the best thing to do sometimes is just to lower your tone of voice, to speak softly, to not reply harshly. And you can do that in the gospel because of how God has treated you. And when we do that, it has profound implications and impacts on people. Uh, someone I, I, I know from, uh, who I met last year shared with me their story of how they became a Christian. He's a Romanian guy, um, raised in a very difficult uh, background and come from a very rough community. Um, he was part of a gang at one time before he was a Christian. And um, the, the, there was someone who owed the gang some money and wasn't paying it. So the gang went round this person's house and beat up the whole family, including the grandma. Horrible. As the guy was leading, leaving the house, the grandma looked up from the floor that she was lying on and she said to him, Jesus still loves you. And he walked out of that room and the gospel had got under his skin and it was only ever a matter of time until he became a follower of Jesus. He said that that, that way of responding to his violence and to his evil broke him and changed him. That's what the gospel does. That's how the gospel affects us. You know, the, for the first 400 years of the, the church history, the most quoted verse was that, the verse we read of Jesus, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. For the first 400 years of the church's existence, if you were to press your ear to some of their sermons and listen in on some of their conversations, what you would hear more than anything else would be those words, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And yet often we try to live out a response to violence and conflict and war that we just simply cannot do outside of the gospel. See, many of us, we, we want to go on this journey. We want to get from here to that flip chart over there. But how do we do it? Well, someone that sins against us, offends us, does something that really upsets us. And what, initially we think, I want to get them back. I want to pay them back for what they've done. 
But then we might think, well, no, wisdom tells me that it's not best to do that because in the words of Ron Burgundy, things escalate quickly. We don't want to respond like that. And so we think, no, I'm going to respond not with violence. I'm going to maybe forgive, but I'm certainly not going to retaliate. But that over there, I can't get there. That's ridiculous. Why would I? Do you not know what they've done to me? Do you not know the pain that they've caused me? Okay, fine. I won't hit them back. Fine. I won't, I don't know, tell them what I really think of them. But that, seriously, you want me to bless them? You want me to pray for them? You want me to give them food and drink and serve them? Cannot do that. Won't do that. And that's entirely normal. But when the gospel gets into us, it changes us and means that we are able to respond in a different way. When someone writes something about you on Facebook that you don't like, or you want to vent some fury on the internet, you're able to not only not do that, but bless the people who persecute you and have been rude to you and unkind to you. You're able to do that because of the gospel. Uh, having a conversation with someone a few weeks ago now who, whose neighbours owed them a lot of money because of some damage that had been done to her property. And when there's genuine injustice, it's very hard to forgive. I can forgive someone for sitting in my chair or breaking, I don't know, a, a household possession. But when there's genuine injustice and I've been cost thousands of pounds or a lot of pain and heartache and hurt, it's a lot harder to offer not only forgiveness but blessing in that situation because genuine injustice costs us. But when we're able to do this, it leaves the door wide open for God, that God can bless us and God can be in the situation. If you've ever been to a busy train station, you'll know that as you look around the amount of train tracks, you think, I have no idea how this system works. Uh, it is very complicated. From my vantage point on the ground, there's just a lot of rails, a lot of trains, a lot of announcements. I don't know. I don't understand how this all works. But I know that there's people in charge, people who do understand the trains coming in and out and the complex system. As Christians, we know that there is a God who sees it all, who understands it all, who knows how it all works together. We can trust him. We're invited to trust him. I want to finish by reading these words in 1 Peter chapter 2 to us. Because this is the heart of the example that we've been set in responding to conflict and violence and being sinned against. 1 Peter says this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, when he was insulted, he did not revile or insult in return, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. The only reason that Christians are able to respond in a way that is different from what seems reasonable. The only reason that we're able to have the strength of mind or character to not just forgive but to bless and to pray for our enemies and those that sin against us is because that's how Jesus treats 
us. You were born as an enemy of God, uh, destined for a life apart from God. Everything that we do until we become Christians is about serving me and my kingdom and my agenda. But God forgives. God doesn't give you your rights, what you deserve. He gives you what Jesus deserves. He forgives you and blesses you. Jesus is praying for you that you would be blessed. Goodness and mercy is following you all the days of your life because of Jesus. And when that gets into us, no matter how hard life is, we are able to forgive. And it's, it's a, an awkward and difficult thing to stand in a room of people and encourage us to not only forgive, but to bless our enemies. It's hard to do that. Because I know in this room, we've experienced all manner of evil against us. Things that are done to you. But I'm not telling you to do it because I, th- I think you should do it. I'm telling you to do it because that's what God's done to you. And because of that, you're able to forgive and bless. It's not easy. It doesn't come naturally. We do need the Holy Spirit's help to empower us and to make it possible. But we can do it because that's what Jesus has done to us. You see, the Sermon on the Mount constitutes Jesus' radical kingdom ethic. It's the ethical heartbeat of the Christian life is love of our enemies, love of those who hate us and are against us. How we conduct ourselves in the world and on social media ought to be different. People who work in the environments that we work ought to feel that difference in the way that we treat them and bless them and bake cakes for bullies and serve drinks to strangers. That's what we do. And the world will turn its heads when we turn our cheeks, when we love those who don't love us, When we are hated, we love. When we are robbed, we give. When we are struck, we don't strike back with violence. See, a person who chooses to love his or her enemies, and it is a choice, can have no enemies. They're left with only neighbors. And we're called to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to respond to this God who's forgiven us and loves us in spite of our sin. Thank you, Father, that you do not treat us as our sins deserve, but you have forgiven us. You have loved us when we were unlovely. And I ask, God, that you'd help us as your church to be a different type of people in the way that we live in the world. Father, for those of us who haven't yet received your grace and forgiveness we pr- I pray Lord that today we would today we would say I need you today we would ask you to help us love our enemies today we would become followers of yours for the first time is this really how you've loved me if it is then I'll respond in kind please help us God amen